The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Well, it's, it's a total pleasure to be here at the National Committee. I've already had the opportunity to meet the other PIMP fellows, and Jan and Sarah and, and uh, Steve have, have welcomed me into this really amazing group. So I feel really excited to be here to be able to share my research with everyone. Um, now, this is actually a, a topic that's near and dear to my heart and actually came about as a result of a lot of personal exploration. Um, when I was in college, I had the chance to move, I, I had the chance to move into the Beijing Film Studio dorm. Uh, so at that point in 1999, um, totally dating myself, but in 1999 there was, a, a, the Beijing Film Studio was still operated as a work unit. So. There, were, um, there was a studio, the apartment complex where the people who worked in the studio lived, and then it was connected to the Beijing Film Academy. And this was still part of the Tianfanwan system where you know, people would have the iron rifle for their, their life. Um, and at that point it was privatizing, so my roommate, uh, the person who I lived with there, actually had just purchased her grandfather's apartment. And he was an, an actor in a film that was one of the early Chinese productions with an American producer. Uh, and that producer actually has grown in his career uh, and most recently was the producer of a film that many of you may have encountered. <laughs> 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 or actively avoided. So The Great Wall um, is the largest budget film ever made in China. Um, and most notably, we can just take a moment to appreciate this. I was born into battle. I fought for greed and gods. This is the first war I've seen. Worth fighting for. All right, so what we see here is a Hollywood that is increasingly made for China. And actually, Jimmy Kimmel, God bless his heart, really kind of got into my presentation last night when he was talking about when he was talking about Manchester by the Sea, uh, how Matt Damon had very kindly uh, given up his position in Manchester by the Sea in order to take on a, an, a Chinese ponytail movie that lost $80 million. Um, now, actually, <laughs> but this, <laughs> this is a really interesting anecdote, um, and you know, kind of spoken, spoken to the Oscars, because he kind of overstated the amount of money that the Great Wall, that the Great Wall was losing. Actually, it may recuperate its budget. Currently, it's taken in $300 million for, for a $150 million production budget. And if it, if it takes in another $75 million, it will recuperate its cost. And it still has several markets to open in. So the film, though we may watch it and laugh at it and think it is, you know, it is kind of silly and we have this Johnny Mo, Matt Damon, Ponytail Monster movie, um, what ultimately we can discover from this is that these films are not necessarily made for with the U.S. audience in mind. You know, the film made $170 million in China. And that is something that when we see an event like the Academy Awards, is really significant because it's still a crowd of people that are making films for other people in Los Angeles. So this kind of disconnect between what the global film industry actually looks like and what is happening in the Academy Awards is something that we can really kind of is something that we can that we can see here. 
So my argument in this book is that actually we're seeing Hollywood that's increasingly being made for China, but that actually Hollywood studios and kind of the elite are not necessarily admitting that, that admitting that to themselves in this kind of in-group language. However, they are still making huge investments abroad in China. And I'll be talking about what that looks like, what these different films look like, and what this invent what these investments look like that are fundamentally transforming the nature of the US and global media industry. So why is this happening? What we can see is that China's film market has grown rapidly since 2011. Um, we have, if, so this is the 2015 numbers. This is a 48.9% increase. Now, there was actually a, a, very, a very small increase um, of, in 2016. You can actually, it actually almost looks like a decrease and that's because of currency exchange. Um, but because of this, the Chinese market is $6.8 billion. Um, U.S. film exports to China were worth $2 billion of that $6.8 billion. And significantly, this is only with an official 34 film quota. Now, last year there were slightly more than 34 films admitted, but this is actually with, with import controls in place. So those, those $2 billion are actually only a, small, are only a percentage of what actually could be approved by Hollywood in the Chinese market. Now, notably, and this is why there's a little asterisk on the 34 film quota, this is the result of a, of a five-year U.S.-China film agreement that expires, that expires this month, that is currently being renegotiated by the Motion Picture Association of America, the U.S. Trade Representative, um, the Chinese, um, Chinese Ministry, uh, the Chinese Ministry of Finance are all kind of playing into this, this negotiation. Significantly, it's also the first major trade agreement that the new administration uh, is going to be negotiating. So appropriately, this very media-focused uh, administration <laughs> has their first U.S.-China trade agreement, will be this media agreement. Now, if this doesn't actually get renegotiated in 2017, um, then it may go back to the World Trade Organization, which is how this 34 film quota came about in the first place. So China wasn't meeting the, their WTO agreements, their commitments to the U.S. to the China China in the WTO court in 2007, and at that point there was this, um, there was this renegotiated agreement of 34 films. <laughs> now it's significant to note that China, at 6.8 billion in 2015, was larger than the next three markets combined. So this is a really significant piece and a really significant piece of the market, and significantly, it's also one that has the potential for really great growth. So if we look at the Asia-Pacific as a percentage change from 2011 to 2015, that's a 56% growth rate. If we look at that compared to North America, Middle East, Latin America, it's really kind of startling. So Hollywood needs the Chinese market, but why does, Holly, why does China need Hollywood? We've seen a lot of different industries where American investors have gone to China and come back it's lost. Um, but actually, this is a, a really interesting industry to look at because the Hollywood Dream Factory is essentially building out this, this vision of a global China. And this is a quote of, from Xi Jinping from 2014. So to strengthen China's soft power, the country needs to build its capacity in international communication, construct a better communication system, better use new media, increase, the creati increase creativity, appeal, and credibility of China's media. And the best way to do this is through technology transfer. Um, and one of the ways in which this is happening is through investment from Hollywood to China. 
This also fits in with a broad range of other strategic goals. So if we think about things like One Belt, One Road, um, in addition to expanding, in addition to expanding production and manufacturing capabilities in these different spaces, there's also been the growth of different Chinese media capabilities, different Chinese media capabilities in these spaces. So for example, the China Global Television Network is a really is a really interesting example of increased capacity being distributed more broadly, not only in not only the United States, but also in different countries in Africa, in Europe, um, in the Middle East. So this is this is all kind of interconnected. So with us with this the collaboration between Hollywood and China, we're seeing improvements in the Chinese domestic film industry, in addition to efforts that are being put in domestically, and then that is actually being spread out globally. Yet, as I mentioned before, there remain serious limitations to Chinese market access for Hollywood studios. And, um, and this, is, this is how we get films like The Great Wall. No, seriously. <laughs> Studios are trying to figure out the magic bullet, the way to access that $6.8 billion market, maybe more, um, and the Great Wall is, is one strategy. And what is that strategy? How does this work? <laughs> Our friend Jackie will, <laughs> will tell us. So we have a variety of different films that enter the market. So there are, there are imported films, part of the 34 film quota. There are, other, there are also one or two other mechanisms through which it's possible to, to bring films into the market, um, which have much lower distribution revenue streams. Um, there are pirated films, so films that wouldn't have otherwise been able to enter the market. Um, and then we have co-produced films. So co-production is a really interesting phenomenon. We see a film like The Great Wall in um, February, February 24th, this past weekend. The amazing film Rock Dog was just released. <laughs> I really deal in high culture here. I mean, like, I, I apologize for the people at the, the National Committee. They're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> talking about Rock Dog and the Great Wall. No, but, um, so the way that this works is actually Sino-Foreign co-productions are contractual agreements between a foreign party and a Chinese party to conduct filming in China. So what this ultimately means is that from the pre-production phase through to post-production, Chinese regulators, the state administration of press, publication, radio, film, and television have oversight of the film at every stage, which means they can decide if a film can be shot. They also have final cut approval of an official co-production, which means, whereas in, in Hollywood, there's this big question, does the director get final cut approval? Does the producer get final cut approval? For co-production, the state administration of press, publication, radio, film, and television get final which is a very, you know, China's a major media regulator, and this is a major distinction between how things work in other places. Now, the interesting part about this is those films can circumvent that 34 film quota. They can circumvent any quotas that may eventually, that may eventually exist. Now, this is very handy for a variety of reasons. One, there's this quota circumvention. Two, they can have a bigger choice of the distributor that they want to use. They get a bigger percentage of the back-end revenue, so the distribution revenue. And also, significantly, there's much more security. So for imported films, there's not this, the film after it's being, after it's, after it's, um, the film has to be assessed in order to enter the market. Whereas with a, a co-production, the producers know at an early stage if it has the likelihood of being able to enter the Chinese market. So if you think about making cars, for example, I, I come from the Motor City, so this is, a, this is an example I draw from a lot, but it's much better to know that your car can be exported to the Chinese market when you're buying the parts rather than when you have the cars completed and you're trying to get them into the market. 
So that's kind of how the co-production process works from that industrial logic. Now, this doesn't only happen with co-productions, and the state administration of press, publication, radio, film, and television doesn't only have oversight in this particular place. Sometimes films start as co-productions, and they're able to really kind of put their, put their um, bureaucratic imprint on, on films, but they don't end as co-productions. And there are a couple of really interesting examples of how this works. Now, co-productions, is a, this is a term that I developed in my book. It's not a technical term from the Chinese government. Uh, but they're projects that, while beginning as official Chinese co-productions, ultimately do not pass approval one or more times. But that being said, that doesn't mean that they haven't already gone through a process of oversight. So at the pre-production phase, saying, yes, you can use these actors. Yes, use this space. Yes, this is a good theme that we, that we would be interested in. So basically, they've already kind of been partially influenced by, regulatory, by the regulatory imprint, but then ultimately may not be released. Now, I'm going to give you an example of you know, another, another piece of high art that, um, that hopefully all of you will really enjoy, um, and, and, and let, you, let you pick out some of the, some of the examples of potential, um, potential influence. All right. Well, let's see. Maybe, oh, maybe, oh, let's see. Maybe we're getting it. There we go. All right. Yeah, we're good. This is the greatest advance in modern physics since the splitting of the atom. A rare metal, molecularly unstable. It's what they're made of. All the way. You guys have never seen a truck like this before. Dad, you can't keep spending money on junk. I don't think it's a truck at all. I think we just found a transformer. The U.S. government. Can I ask you this once? Where is Optimus Prime? After all we've done, humans are hunting us. Not released as a co-production and through the import quota, 
but actually had kind of a, an interesting path. Um, so we can see maybe a couple of points where it, it's interesting to, to question whether, like, how much influence there may have been. Now, that being said, it's not only film that influence that are being struck, that are being, that are, being, that are working together. It's not only film. There are actually a broad range of different shared collaborative productions, um, different shared collaborative investments. So what I talk about in the book is this idea of brand space. Now, films are the most obvious thing because we actually see this range of, um, we, see the, we see these in the multiplex, they're very visible for people in, in everyday life. Um, but brandscapes are a, for a next, next level. They're essentially this, this relationship between a range of different commercial entities, long-term long established investments. Um, now, Anna Klingman calls these the physical manifestations of synthetically conceived identities transposed onto synthetically conceived places. And this is the important part, demarcating culturally independent sites where corporate value systems materialize onto physical territories. So, absolutely, yeah. So this is the important part, corporate value systems on physical territories. So when we're talking about collaborative film production, this is actually corporate value systems and creative value systems coming together into a film. This is actually land, land and spaces that have been rebranded according to, according to both the needs of the Chinese government, of Chinese uh, government, Chinese companies, and American companies. Now, what does this look like? So this is an image from the Shanghai Disney English School. What we're seeing is companies actually establishing spaces in which they are asserting their brands in Chinese spaces. Now, this is particularly significant in a place like Shanghai, which has its long semi-colonial history of foreign directed, of foreign investment. Um, these spaces, the, the French concession, the, the U.S., the, the French concession and other concession spaces in Shanghai, which have a very kind of complicated history with foreign foreign investment. Now, a place like the Shanghai Disney English School has actually emerged out of limitations in the Chinese media in the Chinese media landscape. So the cable news now the cable news industry in China doesn't actually allow foreign investment. So this is actually a way for Disney to enter the market to expose children to screens with Disney properties while actually not having to go through their traditional route of the of the Disney of the Disney Channel. Now this actually started in twenty in two thousand five and led up to the opening of Shanghai Disney Resort in twenty sixteen, in the summer of twenty sixteen. Now this idea of brandscapes really takes shape here because if you look behind the the image of the Enchanted Storybook Castle, which is incidentally the largest Disney castle in the entire world, um, you know, very fitting with the with the discussions of Shanghai's Pudong district. We also see the we also see the Shanghai Tower, the Oriental Pearl Tower, and a broad range of other Shanghai of other Shanghai landmarks actually present in this image. And this was this was an image that kind of was being distributed broadly at the at the opening of the Shanghai Disney Resort. So there's actually this superimposition of the Disney brand on top of the on top of Shanghai's Pudong District, one of the most visible visible nightscapes of in the in the entire world. Now we also see things like the establishment of Oriental DreamWorks, which is a subsidiary of the DreamWorks Corporation that actually incorporates a broad range of Chinese investments and um, and U.S. investments. 
Um, and Oriental DreamWorks had a hand in some of these, um, in the final uh, Kung Fu Panda, the most recent Kung Fu Panda film. So it was a co-production, but the co-production partner was actually Oriental DreamWorks, the um, Chinese, the Chinese subsidiary of DreamWorks with um, American partners. Now this also leads to the Shanghai Dream Center, which is another very much like Shanghai Disney, another large investment imprint into the city of Shanghai. So the Shanghai Dream Center houses, will eventually house Oriental DreamWorks as well as an entertainment complex and an arts complex. And this actually has the, has the, same, type of, um, has the same type of principle, leveraging the brand of the company in order to generate daily revenues in a way that films ne can't necessarily do. So this is a place where people can go and entertain, and entertain themselves with their families, and it leverages the, the existing DreamWorks brand as a way to generate daily income. So it's, it's a new twist on this idea of on this idea of leveraging brands in film, and actually helps to circumvent the challenges of, regula of regulating individual production. So the the content in the Orient in the Shanghai Dream Center and the content in Shanghai Disney Resort don't necessarily have to be regulated in the same way that films do. So it provides a way for companies to actually leverage their brands in these spaces and take full take full advantage of the growth of the market. That being said, all is not rosy. So it's not to say that there are these great opportunities to make films together and to make and to make um, to make shared media, to make shared infrastructure investments. Because actually, as we see more collaboration, we also see more conflict. Now, some of this in terms is in terms of what content is not present. So we have here. This is um, this is from Mission Impossible 3. That's laundry in the Shanghai streets that were that was cut out. We also have um, an image here, sorry, it's kind of small, from World War Z. There was a, a plague that did not start in China. Um, we have James Bond um, in Skyfall, and he did not ultimately shoot a Chinese security guard, even though <laughs> that was in the original film. Now, in terms of what is in these films, there's also, there are also some interesting changes. So, for example, in the most recent Doctor Strange film, Tilda Swinton plays the ancient one who was previously Tibetan, but no longer. She is just... Uh, some, an ancient one from an indiscriminate place. Uh, we have in, in, or in Iron Man 3, Ben Kingsley playing the Mandarin, who was originally a Chinese character, but now he, he plays it as some sort of like Afghan actor. Very, uh, very interesting. Uh, and, then, and then the part that I really like the most is the way in which Sino-US space collaboration in Hollywood is always, inevitably, a seamless, seamless event. So we look at a film like Gravity, or a film like The Martian, or a film like the most, or like Arrival. Um, so this is th three films that present this vision of China-U.S. space collaboration, which actually is a very, very thorny political issue um, in these in these very rosy ways. So it's interesting to see how actually Hollywood is kind of rewriting China-U.S. relations. Now at the same time, we're also seeing more entwined corporate decision making. So Dolly, so legendary per legendary entertainment was purchased by Dolly and Wanda. The Hawaii Brothers and STX Entertainment are actually making a joint, a joint slate of films. So what that means is rather than just one co-production, they're making a series of films all together. AMC Theaters and Carmike Theaters were both purchased by Dolly and Wanda. So they have the, the largest, that company now has the largest number of um, films of any individual distributor in the US. Um, and then Perfect World Pictures and Universal have also established a slate together. Now all of this has all of this 
has potentially really great outcomes for Chinese companies and Hollywood companies, but there's actually been a lot of pushback um, in Washington, for example. Um, so this is actually a letter that was written by, um, by members of Congress on September 15, 2016. Zooming in a little bit, it's talking actually about the um, concerns raised regarding Dalian Wando's acquisition of movie studios, um, their potential acquisition of Paramount, and growing Chinese efforts to censor and exert and censor topics and exert propaganda control over U.S. media. Now, while this started with Republican Congress people, actually there there have been multiple calls to gender, to focus more on making the making this process more robust um, using something called CFIUS. So CFIUS is an interagency committee authorized to review transactions that could result in control of a business by a foreign person. And this is in order to determine the, the effect on, on such events for national security purposes. Now, actually, the New York Senator, Charles Schumer, this week was talking about making CFIUS a bigger and more prominent feature of, um, of, US, of, Sino, of Sino-US relations and actually focusing on these economic issues. So this is something that's actually not exclusively within the domain of, of Republicans in the House. It's also been taken up uh, more broadly in the Senate. So this is something that, looking down the pike, will be very interesting to see in terms of Chinese investment in the U.S. That being said, you know, we have had in the U.S. not a wonderful history with people in Congress trying to control the content in movies. Some of us may remember the McCarthy era. This isn't something that we, necess- this isn't necessarily a direction that we want to go in. Um, I think additional, additional oversight of what's going on may be useful, but that being said, having you know, the U.S. Congress and the U.S. Executive Branch weighing in on the content of being produced in Hollywood is something that we don't necessarily want to go back to. So when I when I talk about these things, I think it's important for people to know and for that for them to be inputs in how we consume and produce information. But I don't necessarily think that we should you know develop a, a new cultural patrol in the United States in order to to, to do these sort of things. Now, what does this mean right now? Where are we right now? So the U.S. and China are currently negotiating a a new U.S.-China film agreement, as we discussed. Um, The U.S. legislative and executive branch antipathy toward Chinese inbound investment is increasing, so both both looking into the CFIUS process, but also potential tariff discussions, um, and we'll really see how all of that plays out over the next six months. Um, Interestingly, at the same time, because of the increase in foreign outbound investment um, by Chinese companies to the U.S., the Chinese government has also been pulling back on what is allowed for Chinese investment in the United States. So this is actually making, this is actually starting to change the dynamic. Now that being said, what this means is Hollywood studios are ultimately more likely to take media investment abroad to secure access to the Chinese market. So if it's difficult to bring foreign investment to the U.S., and there's both there are both Chinese government controls and U.S. government controls of this, then it only makes sense to then invest more in the Chinese market, provided that there are actually decent movies or <laughs> that, that can be made. Um, so that being said, as, as, I, as I hope I convey, the movies are only a very small part of this. Things like Shanghai Disney Resort, which, well, which are, is actually able to recuperate its, um, recuperate its tickets from just the immediate region surrounding Shanghai. Um, are actually the kind of bigger end game here for at least the big, the big media conglomerates. So ultimately, making entertainment locally in China will continue to transform Hollywood. Now, I think it's important to note that I say entertainment here and not only film. So as we look at this, 
identifying different ways in which these brands could be leveraged within the Chinese domestic market, not necessarily as movies, but as ancillary products, toys, um, experiences. There's actually a, a Shanghai Disney photo studio where you can go and take pictures of yourself dressed up as a Disney princess and things like this, which, you know, like when expanded across a market of 1.3 billion people have, have a potential have a potential upside. Now that being said, what does it look like when movies are made for the Chinese market first? What does it look like when entertainment is made for the Chinese market first? So I'm going to give you one final glorious example of <laughs> of a film that was that did extremely well in the Chinese domestic market. Um, $220 million, um, but only $47 million in the U.S. So. And why is this not? All right, well this film, for those of you who may be curious, is based on a, a very high culture product called the World of Warcraft. So the Warcraft film uh, and they, they took the, the narrative and the, and the landscape and the world of World of Warcraft and actually made, made a film about it, which has just as robust a narrative as you may imagine. Um, not very. But ultimately actually did really well within the Chinese market and, and leveraged this really significant brand of, of World of Warcraft that, that has done extremely well in China. So if you're interested in some of these issues and how they play out and what they look like um, and the, any greater complexity in looking at, at all of these different cases, what I'd like to do is, is point you to my, to my recently published book, Hollywood Made in China, um, where, I talk about, where I talk about all of these things in greater depth. And the book actually is divided into three sections. The first part looks at the kind of larger policy relations. The second part looks at how this happens, so the, the industry forums and the festivals and the, the different policy mechanisms through which collaboration happens. And then the third part, which I haven't talked about today, but it's really fun, is I actually look at the lives and experiences of above the line and below the line players in the film market. So people like um, like the set builder, Lu Jianxiang, who worked under Mao and then worked as a set builder for the Mummy 3 in, in the Shanghai Film Studios. So, there are some really, there are some really interesting stories and people, and I really appreciate your time and attention, and welcome your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Oh yeah. And Sarah, I don't know if you want to come up or. Uh, okay. Sure. Okay. I'm sorry about the. the oh, don't worry. Um, I mean, you can watch the Warcraft trailer on your own. If you <laughs> 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 um. Um, this is really interesting. I mean, f movies are something we all love and care about, so it's interesting to think about how it's not only sh the movies that we see are going to be um, changing with more Chinese influence uh -huh. and, and investment, um, but also, like, I can't remember what the term of art is, but, you know, the way we, cultural entertainment, like, mm -hmm. we're, that, that we have Disneyland or that we, pro the products, that the film studios are sort of thinking about the, um, the non-visual aspect of yeah. movies. Well, and it's, I mean, I think actually it's not just this question of the non-visual, but it's the repeatable experience. Mm -hmm. So what is possible to make that people will be able to, you know, so, so that it only needs to be regulated once, essentially, and where people can actually go back and see it multiple times and have, you know, and also kind of create those memories, mm -hmm. those family memories. You know, a lot of us in the United States talk about 
our memories of Disney, and, yeah. you know, and then that creates a, a later, this is a very cynical interpretation, but creates a, a later ancillary market once those people grow up and our parents and, right. you know, go back and purchase those same products. Right, and then go to Disneyland and then go bring to your Disneyland. children and yeah, you yeah. can do that more than once. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, uh, I guess I also want to talk about, we talked about this uh, a little bit before in the podcast, but the, um, the sort of image of China that, 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 is, that is being shaped. What, yeah. is, what is that? What is that sort of soft, uh, can we talk a little bit about that? The yeah. Soft power? So this is, so the, the growth of the Chinese media industry, and while I, while I actually talk about this in terms of, um, in terms of it being an industry and, you know, just as if it was like automotive or semiconductors, um, there is this really important cultural aspect of it. And it's specifically tied in with this vision of the Chinese dream or earlier the going out policy, um, this idea of creating a vision of China that speaks to a global audience, Mm -hmm. um, something that looks more broadly that looks more broadly at China's new role in the world. Right. So this idea of the peaceful rise of China's ascendance as a major global economic player, um, and that's that's a really significant that's a really significant role. Just images of the city of Shanghai, for example, yeah, um, or images of ur- Chinese urbanites, kind yeah. of are really important to counter narratives about China as a major threat in the United to the United mm-hmm. States or as, you know, a backward country. I mean, so it's doing very important work that I think is that I think is necessary largely because I mean, especially, you know, and I'm speaking I'm preaching to the choir here at the National Committee, but um, you know, there isn't as much awareness about what China is in the United States as, oh, there, as there should be. Right. So I I mean, I see the value um, in a lot of that. Yeah, and that's also, I mean, I think, you know, myopically as an American, oh, it's just China coming to the U.S., but as a global market, China must be looking at India and Southeast Asia, I mean, the rest of the world, right, is where it can open up. Yeah, absolutely, and I mean, there are increasing, so I talk about the relationship between China and the United States, but, I mean, China, Chinese investment in Eastern Europe, um, in the film industry, in mm-hmm. Africa, and in, in the television industry, in Latin America, these are all rapidly growing areas. Um, and in some ways, the, it's more possible for um, for Chinese media to have a, a big imprint because it's not kind of fighting against this, you know, Hollywood juggernaut. Oh, interesting. So yeah. it's easier for them to access other markets. Yeah, because there isn't. I mean, there isn't as much fo- like so. There, there's less competition, mm-hmm. um, and and also there's there's frankly a lot of need for additional media investment in those spaces. So we can look at t- places. I'm sorry, Steve, you had a question. Oh. We can look at sort of the collaboration of U.S. Chinese films, and then those films going to Indonesia, or then going to. Um, and are there different calculations for what would make a successful movie? I imagine there are yeah. for what, the U.S. market versus the Indonesian market. I mean, would those? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, would those be tweaked a little bit in terms of yeah. positive images? Well, I think I think like financially, there there are some there are metrics about what makes a successful film, and and those are usually determined by by glo- those are usually determined globally. So a film tries to recuperate 2.5 percent of its, or I mean, sorry, 2.5 times its budget um, in its box office. So a less expensive film um, has a much greater likelihood of being of being profitable. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, what constitutes a a successful film in the Indonesian market versus in the U.S. market versus in the China market. Totally different things. Very complicated. Yeah. yeah. Um, what does this mean? I'm sorry, go ahead. Do you have a question, sir? Um, well, I don't want to interrupt. If you have a train of thought, I'll, I'll ask it later. It's not um, well, I can ask it later. Go ahead. We'd, we'd like to Thank welcome you. I'm trying to understand um, 
I'm thinking about this in terms oh, of... Could you introduce yourself, sir? I'm so sorry. My name is Jonathan Fallon. And I'm trying to understand this in terms of who stands to benefit over the long term. Right. And so it brought to mind two uh, examples. One, um, Apple and the iPhone, which right. is manufactured in China, using Chinese manufacturing, but designed in America, and the American company continues to benefit from infiltrating global markets. Yeah. The other example that came to my mind was the Saudi Arabian oil company, which started out with a bunch of American oil companies going there and teaching them how to pump oil. Now they're selling to global markets, but it's benefiting Saudi Arabia. Right. So in the long run, is this are we looking at something that stands to benefit China or American industry or both? This is a win-win. Well, I mean, I, I think that everyone wants to say that it's a win-win when they're doing the deal. Um, I think that Chinese partners have the potential, and I think like his, I think so far we've seen that there has been a very a large infusion of, of dollars and resources into the Chinese market that hasn't necessarily been um, completely recouped by most of the by most of the American partners. But I think that's changing with things like with things like Shanghai Disney. Um, now, what the future holds in terms of who wins, the China or the U.S., um, I would have maybe made a guess about that three months ago, but I'm, I'm really uncertain about what's coming, what's coming down the pike in terms of our trade relationship with China. Um, so I think that you know, whether or not we have increased tariffs, um, whether like you know, we had a discussion, like Steve Mnuchin said that he wouldn't uh, most likely, or he would look at research to assess whether or not China was a currency manipulator or not, but that was different than what we were hearing from the president. You know, like all these questions actually feed directly back into this relationship. So, I mean, I think, and I think also in the examples that you give, it's possible to look at them from different perspectives. So, for, so Apple is still benefiting from their global production in China, but we also look at an up-and-comer like, like Xiaomi um, that leveraged a lot of that expertise and is now kind of building its own market um, for handsets both domestically in China and in the region. So, so I think that, you know, it's first a case-by-case -case basis and second, highly dependent on larger factors that are really in flux right now. Thank you. Is it true that Steve Warren <laughs> <laughs> We know who you are. <laughs> Those transformers which you, which you yeah. showed, is that actually the pivot point when box office, you know, IMAX movie, right. box office in China exceeded the box office in the United States, and suddenly Hollywood woke up to what was going on. Yeah. And part of that is, does it really matter who owns the studios? Is there any evidence that they're acting anything but commercially? If you have to get yeah. into the Chinese market, it really doesn't matter if it's owned by a Yeah, no, I mean, in, I, I agree with you in many ways. It's, I mean, I think this question of ownership is a really interesting one. So I would push back in the sense that I think the, you know, 
publicly traded companies behave differently than privately owned or state-run companies. So, for example, the most recent, the recent IPO of the China Film Group in June um, will impact the way in which they will impact the way in which they make they enter the market. Or, like privately held companies have a little bit more flexibility in terms of being able to make things like taking more risks, whereas publicly traded companies have to, you know, meet their quarterly earnings reports um, in a much in a much more rigorous environment. But, but yeah, absolutely. This um, the CFIUS letter. And the fact that that's actually gaining steam. When I first saw this in September, I was like, "Oh my gosh, what's going on?" But, um, but actually, in, discuss- in discussions in um, in DC, one of the things that I've heard is that this is actually something that is becoming more and more part of the mainstream. And in some ways, it's kind of cutting off your nose to spite your face, um, saying that you're not going to take Chinese investment, um, even though it's actually facilitating growth within one of our major industries. Um, but. I think that the reasons behind that are not necessarily because of industrial growth, but actually concerns about Chinese government influence. Now, again, like building on this... Is there evidence that there is political influence in the studios that have been invested in by Chinese companies? Well, I mean, you can, there, are a couple, there are a couple of small examples, but the whole point behind this, and I think you're really pointing to this, is that it's Hollywood studios that are making the choice to change their films. So it's not like, you know, if we if we if we say like you would like Chinese film Chinese companies cannot invest in the United States, this is actually going to change the behavior of U.S.-based firms that are trying to enter the Chinese market. So it's it's kind of enacting additional regulations that don't necessarily yield the desired effect, and are solving a problem that, as you as you point like, as you correctly point out, isn't a huge issue at this point. Um, I think it it would squeeze out a lot of local production. It wouldn't squeeze out everything, though. I mean, there are some there have been like increasingly really you know wonderful Chinese films that are very exciting for domestic audiences. Um, and then there is like this kind of more high tech production in China. So um, films that are being made using like data driven films, like Tiny Times Three, for example, did extremely well within the Chinese market, relying on social data. Um, so there are ways and there are ways that Chinese filmmakers know the Chinese market. Um, and are able to attend to the needs of Chinese viewers that Hollywood studios cannot do. But there is still like a there are still advantages that Hollywood has in the Chinese market, definitely. Thank you. Thank you for those great questions. TK? Uh, TK Chang. Following up on that point, um, for occupational reasons, yeah. I forced myself to watch Warcraft. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then also for some Transformers. And then I also also uh, watched the most best-selling movie in China, which is Mermaid. Yeah, yeah. Which is pretty bad, pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's like that. And so but at the same time, I hear that uh, Downton Abbey and uh, House of Cards very popular through streaming. So, I mean, how fast do you think the Chinese audience is going to become, you know? Educated, sophisticated, when they see, you know, good quality stuff, and or will their tastes changed from the yeah, yeah, yeah. Re narrate that. No, but I mean one of one of the interpretations of the of the drop in the box office last year 
was that Chinese audiences were responding to the fact that they, they didn't like what they were seeing in multiplexes. Um, there are a lot of different potential interpretations, so I don't think that's the, that's the only reason, but it's definitely something that's been floated. And, and we are seeing audiences becoming more discriminating in, in their taste, absolutely. I'm sorry, I don't, can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that's, I think that's a great, that's a great point. And actually, we saw this, so not just, not just last year, but also um, after um, Iron Man three was released, there was a, a guidance that was released by Zhang Hongsen, who is, um, who is a, a regulator. Um, and he actually, he actually said that, you know, he, he said, made a public guidance for filmmakers that they need to actually incorporate Chinese content and representations of what it looks like to live in China in order for a film to be considered a co-production, which I think is a very reasonable yeah. <laughs> response. I mean, if it's going to be a Sino-U.S. co-production, there should be something that looks like contemporary China. But, but then, like, um, the Great Wall. Uh -huh. mm. like the perfect example. Yeah. Almost the first one, I think people back in yeah. Well, and I mean, a film like, I think a film like The Great Wall is a really wonderful example of this, where, you know, there are so many, I mean, I, 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 did, I did two degrees in Chinese literature. There are so many amazing Chinese stories that are, you know, so rich and so fascinating and that haven't been told in a, like, cinematic, in a cinematic environment, let alone a cinematic environment of $150 million, that it's true. There's, there are some... Um, there are limitations to what Hollywood is presenting, and in some ways, this is kind of part of the culture of filmmaking in Hollywood. It's you know these kind of spectacles that are designed to translate globally and make people be able to watch them without having a like a linguistic background that would that would work. But this this really destroys a lot of this a lot of these nuances and kind of the interest of of a lot of the stories. I was wondering that because it seems like with Hollywood's buying, you know, this is from the 90s, I guess, buying these sort of niche productions or smaller um, arty art house theaters, yeah. art house um, sort of movie studios like Miramax was yeah. back then. Can you see as this becomes a bigger phenomenon that the sort of um, more independent style films will also come out? In addition to Great Wall, there'll be so many more films that you could include the lower grossing yeah. arty films or... I mean, I think that we, I think that we'll see that, but I don't think we'll see that as much in theatrical distribution, but rather in the digital landscape. And that's something that we're mm -hmm. seeing in the U.S. as well. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the reasons why a lot of these films are big-budget spectacles is because with films that are distributed in 3D or IMAX or that need to be seen in a theater because of, you know, their special effects, it's difficult to pirate them. People don't want to watch them at their mm -hmm. houses. They're willing to go to a theater to to watch them. And I mean. It's obviously better if the story is better, um, 
But but that being said, those you know the small films like the really great narratives are much harder to convince people to leave their you know cozy couches to watch in movie theaters. And this is not just a phenomenon phenomenon that happens in China. This happens in the U.S. as well. Thank you for your great question. I'm sorry. Yes. Okay, uh, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the movie it was purely American. Yeah. And uh, uh, I was wondering how China capital, uh, Chinese capital, played in Hollywood. Because, uh, and I was also wondering. Uh, Yeah. So we are seeing a lot of that. So Alibaba, Huayi Brothers, um, the you know uh, Wanda are all kind of taking these taking these really significant roles by financing films. But this is actually a great thing for the companies, but not a great thing for Chinese soft power interests. So a film like is, as you point out, the most recent Star Wars film, it's, it may have some Chinese actors in it, but no one would confuse it for, a, you know, a film that draws on Chinese narrative tradition or, you know, or even represents what contemporary China looks like. Um, so I think that is part of the reason why there has been this, why there has been this guidance to reduce capital flow into things like, into things like motion pictures, to make, as, as, she, as Chinese President Xi Jinping articulated, Chinese stories and to build the Chinese domestic communication market. Because something like foreign, like Chinese investment in a, Star War, in a Star Wars film doesn't do that, necessarily, unless the film is being partially shot or edited or, or you know, the effects are being done in China. It's really just capital outflow, which is, is a suboptimal outcome for, um, for Chinese domestic policy. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. So that's so that's kind of a that's kind of been a casualty of of this. I mean, rather so we could first look at the CFIUS process, but actually it wasn't CFIUS that that stopped that. It was um, Chinese government regulation of capital outflows. Um, and we'll, that was we'll a Chinese government regulation, well, not a Wanda having a So my my understanding was that it was due to regulations on Chinese government out uh, Chinese government capital outflow. But there, I mean, there are, there are always a lot of things going on in these, and you know what is publicly reported versus what's privately happening. You know, can there can be a lot of different potential um, potential stakes? Yeah, thank you. I, I was told by a Chinese banker that in November they came out with a, a regulation in China that, 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 that you're not supposed to buy 100% of the Hollywood studio. Yeah. Know, I yeah. But you can buy 51%. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, and 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 the the tricky part for these companies is the regulations are you know changing relatively rapidly and not with a lot of advance forewarning necessarily. I mean, obviously, if you have like good connections and you're able to to know what's going on before it happens, um, but but not a lot of like clear forewarning in advance. Yeah. Yeah. Got. Yeah. Guidance. Yeah. 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 A lot of this is 
Yeah. Yeah. Which in some ways is, is as or more effective <laughs> if people... Totally lacks in transparency. Yeah. <laughs> but other than that. Bill? Yeah. Um, okay, the sensitive question. Yeah. The reason, I'm sorry, Bill Bacalis. Uh, sensitive question, the reason why I sense people are looking at uh, Chinese involvement in Hollywood seems to me not so much the changing of content that you're planning to sell in the Chinese market, which I agree with Steve completely. Any American company that wants yeah. to mm-hmm. do its films in China is going to have to meet the Chinese government's expectations, right. whether it's Chinese-owned or an American-owned. The, sense, the really sensitive question is, is it affecting in any way the content that's being produced, not for the Chinese market, but for the American market, yeah. Yeah. or other markets? To say, well, you know, we might want to do a film about Liu Xiaobo, yeah. or, or the Dalai Lama, yeah. or Kundun, or others, or or show some negative aspect of life in China in a film without even dreaming yeah. of going to you know, put it up on the screen in, in Beijing or Shanghai, but still yeah. saying, well, if we do that, we will lose access to the Chinese market. Or the, or the co-production. They won't get involved in, in producing yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Or in general. Does that come up in, in your book? Yeah. Well, so the way that I think of it is this um, is the the China or the the California Texas textbook issue, right? So Texas issues guidance on um, textbooks that can be made for the Texas educational market, or California issues guidance on you know what that needs to look like, and then uh, then textbook producers make re- make decisions based upon those big markets. Um, so it's true we haven't seen. Um, and this is something that's very similar to what's going on in the Chinese market, where, you know, look, look at the, recent, the most recent three years. Have you seen, like, negative portrayals of the Chinese military or of, or, you know, extremely, you know, or, I mean, so, sorry, <laughs> I was just trying to get you. Um, <laughs> yeah, so ultimately, I think that this question of whether or not we'll see, like, major films that focus on the Dalai Lama or on, you know, Chinese political dissidents, I think you, your your impulse is is really is right, but the the problem is those things don't come those things don't come out. You know they get they get killed in pre-production, and also they're the sort of things that studios are completely unwilling to go on the record about. They may you know mm-hmm. they may like it may be possible to find out this information, but finding someone to say yeah we decided to kill this project because you know it would offend the Chinese market the Chinese regulators is very very difficult to do. Even with something like changing the Tibetan character on doc, for Doctor Strange, um, you know, the ways in which the studio PR were talking about it was like, you know, somehow by switching the character to a, to a Caucasian person um, from a, an Asian character, they were, they were fighting against Orientalism and, you know, the vision of the yellow. I mean, it was like the, I mean, the, I, I, I can pull up, the, I can pull up the quote for you, but it's, it was really, it was really re- like kind of a remarkable PR tap dancing. Um, <laughs> And I think that that's that's a microcosm of a much bigger of a much bigger issue that we're that we're definitely starting to see. Any, is any evidence that Chinese invested studios mm-hmm. and purely U.S. studios, right? Studios behave differently. Could so, uh, yeah. 
sell. Right, right, right. Okay. I just keep getting yeah. Right. When I hear our Congress talk about affecting the investment, uh, investment in the United States, it's the foundation. Totally, of the yeah. Country. Yeah. Free media, not having government mm. interference, <laughs> is a foundation. So you have two parts here where I think it's important those of us who kind of look at this right. constantly repeat there's no evidence that Chinese invested companies are behaving differently. Can the Chinese, because of the size of the market, yeah. affect Chinese invested and U.S. owned companies? The answer is yes. Right, right, exactly. But that's because of the size of the market and to restrict Chinese investment in that is not going to help in terms of the production and the political content of production. And I think that's a theme we, we all need to be no, and I mean, and so I think that it is, I think that your points, I mean, I think that your, your points coexist, essentially, that, that it does change what's being made in the market, but it doesn't change it just because of, you know, Chinese, um, Chinese companies deciding of what, what they're going to make in the market and they're going to, like, in, and they're going to influence Hollywood for these nefarious reasons. It's a, it's a question of market access. And I think that it's really, like, very plainly a question of market access, of whether or not Hollywood studios are able to enter the Chinese enter the Chinese market with their products, and what they're willing to do for that to happen, um, and this is something that we see not just in the film industry. There are, you know, U.S. car companies change the change the admission standards that they're that they make their that their cars with, or they change the products that they're making when they're exporting. And I realize that you know movies are it's a different thing because it has this cultural content, and you know there's this association with, you know, propaganda regimes and, you know, so it, it, it makes everyone a lot more nervous. Um, and this is one of the reasons why there, you know, there is this guidance from, from Chinese President Xi Jinping. But unless we're going to start telling Hollywood studios what they can and cannot make, which I agree with Steve that this is not something, not a direction that we want to go, then it is, you know, we will potentially see these changes in content, but not just because of Chinese companies, but because of market forces. I was thinking of um, McDonald's when it sells, I think in Israel they don't have, or you know, restaurants that sell internationally change the cuisine, even fast food, based on sort of local taste. I mean, as you say, culture is a different thing, yeah. but yeah, it's just standard yeah. marketing. Yeah. 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 And words. Yeah. Yeah, and this is actually this is actually part of the argument that the Chinese government makes about why they're about why they should be able to have a quota because there's a you know the precursor to the WTO, the um, General Agreement on Trade and Services, actually had this kind of cultural exception. Um, Just to yeah. be clear, yeah. but, but the question I raised, yeah. and I agree with Steve's yeah. point about, but the question I raised is not changing content in order to sell a show movie in China. Yeah. Even when you're deciding what films you're going to anywhere. Yeah. Right. Just for distribution in the U.S. Right. Well, they remember me as a studio that produced a film that showed Mao in the negative right. in the Cultural Revolution, right? which is not as that outrageous an interpretation of Mao's role in the Cultural Revolution. Right, right, right. I might lose access to my China market for the other films that I'm making. Yeah. And that's, so, but I, I agree completely. It's 
by no means clear. I mean, these are commercial operations, Chinese-owned, Western-owned. They're all going to be making those same calculations. Yeah. But whether it's exactly the same, right? We will, we will see. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. I appreciate, it. and 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 I guess, you know, I I think I I think I I see your point and. And it does it does impact this kind of question of, of market access for sure. I think there was a question. Yeah. Further, yeah. broader, totally irrelevant. But um, you know, I think the discussions we've had is because Hollywood doesn't operate in a bubble. The entertainment industry doesn't operate in a bubble. In a bubble, China has a long history of bullying U.S. companies, restricting market access. So the argument being that the U.S. should remain open, where China has Well, so I think that, I mean, that's an excellent question, and I think it's a very important question. Um, so we have a couple of tools in our toolbox, but admittedly, none of them are, none of them are great. Um, so one, and this would be the, you know, the post, if we didn't come to an agreement on the, on the 2017 um, renegotiation is going through the WTO, but for the 2007 complaint that the U.S. made, it took five years to get any kind of resolution during which the entire industry changed. Um, we also have, and the, my preferred option is actually greater oversight of, of Chinese investment into the U.S., not, not through the CFIUS process, but actually identifying like, who, the, who the partners are and who actually is investing in, in, company, in individual companies. So actually getting a better sense of the corporate ownership structure before a company can make a major acquisition, um, which doesn't have to be done through the CFIUS process. It can be done through like, much more, um, much more simple, <laughs> you know, much more simple uh, re regulatory methods. Um, so I think like that would be that would be my my preferred my preferred interest. I think it's also important, and this is one of the reasons why I wrote this book, for consumers to understand why this is happening and what it looks like, so that they can also push back if there are things that they see or things that they're not things that they do see or things that they don't see that they don't like, that they can actually you know vote with their wallets and or you know or tweet about it or you know share share information with their with the companies that are providing products for them. Um, because if people don't know why this is happening, then these changes can actually occur really very widely without kind of broad knowledge. So that's so. Thank you for coming. As, uh, and that's so. I think it's it's important for people to know and for you know to say things to bring up these questions with with studios. The idea that China 
basically saying that the U.S. government underestimates Chinese investment for Wall Street. That's about, uh, U.S. investment in China is about $220 billion. And you can point to examples of bullying, but China's success has been based upon being open to foreign investment, not being mm. closed mm -hmm. to foreign investment. And the narrative that, that it's been closed, that, that U.S. companies are bullied, is a narrative that derives from Washington as opposed to from the data mm -hmm. that's presented. Yeah. And what we could do would be encourage President Trump to enter into a bilateral investment treaty, which Obama administration has negotiated 90% of, and that will open certain sectors of China that have per formerly been closed. So that's the single best thing that we can do, which doesn't really injure U.S. business. Pretty much, you're quite right, the tools that we have, Anne's right, mm -hmm. the tools that we have are very limited, and they're very much cutting off your nose to spite your face. So if you restrict Chinese investment, and they don't buy a particular company, then the owners of that company are U.S. pension funds. <laughs> so what you're doing is taking money away from retired people in the United States by denying them the highest price for the sale of that company. So it's very, very difficult to come up with tools. But the bilateral investment treaty is based upon the Chinese leadership's belief that competition from foreign investment raises the quality of domestic companies. And they're willing to open more, but for various political reasons, we have chosen not to go there. Yeah, and, and just as a follow-up to that, I think it's very unfortunate that Think, I think you're right, and actually, this is kind of a, a sad story because when I when I started writing this and the conclusion to my dissertation, uh, the first draft of this was that with greater collaboration, the U.S. and China would enhance their understanding of one another through these like, <laughs> increased film relationships, and that was that was very much what I what I hoped for. And then you know you see movies like. Iron Man 3 and Transformers 4, and you're like, all right, well, you know, I need to <laughs> maybe go back to the drawing board and and think rethink my conclusions. So, yeah, but I, I mean, I agree with you. And and there are amazing Chinese filmmakers and wonderful films that are being wonderful domestic films that are being made, especially by Chinese independent filmmakers. <coughs> you and also the oh, I think we may have we may have someone who hasn't had a chance to ask. Sure. Oh yeah, no, please. No, if it's okay. It's, um, I had my name is Malcolm. I had a question about content related to his question. Yeah. Uh, it's one thing, I guess, to remove kind of James Bond shooting a, a Chinese security guard or <laughs> Chinese yeah. laundry, but yeah. how do you wind up, I think in your book you talked about a couple films like Iron Man and Transformers mm -hmm. that seem to wind up with 
kind of vaguely pro-China narrative mm -hmm. or, or things like you know Chinese warships entering the Hong Kong right. and the, the, the harbor. And, and how do you wind up with, uh, I think, uh, presumably mostly American screenwriters yeah. uh, writing in that kind of pro-China content, writing in that kind of, uh, I don't want to say propaganda, maybe it's too strong a word, but that kind of, that kind of content. Is, is there a lot of collaboration uh, with censors? How does that happen? Well, it depends. That's a great question. And a lot of it depends on the structure of the film. So if a film is a co-production, then there's a lot more back and forth um, with regulators from the, from the pre-production phase all the way through post-production. Um, for films that are designed to be exported to China um, or films that have like a, an eye on a Chinese market, there are events like the U.S.-China Film Summit, um, which takes place in November. It's actually sp it's sponsored through the Asia Society. Um, in Shanghai, there's the um, Shanghai Film Co-Production Forum. Um, there's also one in Beijing. The Beijing International Film Festival has a co-production forum. And basically, these are, there's, these are spaces which kind of informally offer guidance for filmmakers about what does and does not work within the market. And you know, it, it happens through panels. It also happens through like casual conversations with people. There are also these things called pitch forums, um, where filmmakers can actually pitch their movies to potential Chinese investors and get feedback. So that's that's partial, that, and those those serve multiple purposes. On one hand, it's like, do we like your movie enough to give you money um, on the very most basic level? And then on the other hand, there's also kind of informal guidance about, you know, we can't actually make this movie here, or this one we can't distribute this. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no problem. noticed in a production that I've worked on that was a, a co-production between Canada and China, that as soon as Chinese money came in, and we were going to be releasing the film in China, there was a fair amount uh, of self-censorship that we can't pursue this line of argumentation because this won't play. Uh, and so we were a little bit directing ourselves before, or that, that was happening, I wasn't, I wasn't really directing, but <laughs> that was happening before uh, before even going to the censor with any additional notes. I was just curious how I wound up. I can understand a little bit removing some content, but then how I would wind up um, adding content you wouldn't expect to an American film. Thank you. Yes? Shuji Jensen. First of all, could you just explain a bit? Because before the US office, uh, uh, box office opened, uh, Great War had grossed a little bit close to 250 million. Yeah. And with a budget of 150, and you mentioned that it would still be a while before it breaks mm -hmm. even. Did you calculate to include other factors? And the other thing is, I'm just curious uh, whether in the wake of uh, Great War, there yeah. will be a discussion about what would be the ideal way to reconcile the different narrative conventions. Right. Um, particularly, I think that the Chinese, the way they tell stories, not only just about the subject matter, just about the narrative, how the story is told, is sometimes very different from what we are used to. Yeah. You think in, in the case that, I think it's commonly accepted that the film doesn't re accomplish the artistry or you know, the, uh, the merits that we would like it to, to have done. Yeah. But then the question is, what will be, what does it point to the future? that would be a viable way of doing a production that would be actually be a good film. Yeah. 
No, and I mean, I, I made a little bit of fun of the Great Wall, but actually I wanted to take a step back and, and actually acknowledge what a huge accomplishment it is because marshalling that many resources, um, a director directing in a foreign language, um, and actually creating something using talent and resources from so many different from so many different areas of influence to appeal to so many different markets is something that's actually very difficult to do. And in some ways, we can see the Great Wall as part of a longer progression of films that have tried to do this. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, earlier films like like The Mummy Three or The Forbidden Kingdom were kind of earlier co-productions that tried to that tried to access both markets. But then there are examples which I think. And this is this is one that I profile in my book, which I think does did a particularly excellent job of a film like *Lust Caution*, um, the the Ang Lee film. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that in that film, the story and narrative process was was very different than how it might than how it played out in the in the bigger budget um, in the big, bigger budget spectacles. So the the screenwriter James Seamus worked with his longtime partner uh, Wang Hui Ling um, and with Ang Lee to create a, a narrative that actually met Chinese historical, uh, actually told the Chinese story about Chinese history, um, but that was designed to fit within the U.S. historical narrative genre. Mm -hmm. Um, And the film only had a, the film's market in China was relatively good. It it did quite poorly in the U.S., partially as a result of an NC-17 rating. Um, So that that strictly limited the number of people who watched it. But it was really interesting talking with James Seamus about his creative process and how you know he he read the original narrative source material, he discussed it with scholars, he you know had he there was a, a Chinese language version of the script and an English language version of the script, and they really went back and forth to identify a, you know to identify how to reconcile these linguistic and narrative traditions. Um, and I think that we're seeing across each individual film new techniques are being developed. And one of the things I argue in my in my book is that actually a lot of those skills are not being are not being gathered and reused because you know people will work on one production and they won't necessarily work on another one or you know because mm-hmm. the market is relatively fragmented mm-hmm. so translators or production assistants or you know stand-ins who know who know how to effectively work together in these product in these productions don't necessarily maintain their their jobs from one production to another there's a lot of knowledge that's being lost. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that actually, in some ways, the Great Wall was a really big step forward. Um, and we'll see. I think it's possible that it will that it will make it to 375 million. Right now, it's at about 300 million. So it's not it's not inconceivable that with Japan and Turkey and a couple of other markets that it would get up to that point. Um, and and I think that it it did well enough that there will more than likely be other attempts at something similar to this, which will hopefully, you know, kind of yield what we're, what we're all looking mm-hmm. for. People are encouraged enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you, and this was great. I think that's all we have time for, but thanks so much for coming. Thank you yeah, so yeah. much, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>